Returnable, return again to uh, Galatians. Slowly making our way through this great epistle. We've covered up to chapter 4. The last time we stopped at verse 7. Paul had just gone over with the Galatians the falsity that the uh, Judaizers were putting forth. If you want to be a true Christian, then you must be a proselyte Jew. Then you can claim that you're a son of Abraham. He put that completely and utterly to bed and said, no, it's false. It's not your bloodline. It's what God wants. It's what God, the covenant God made before. It's not about Abraham. It's not about works. It's not about bloodline. Today, I plan to look at verses 8 through 20. Paul is going to keep on with the Galatians. He's going to be appealing to their past because the Galatians didn't have a Judaistic past. They, had, they didn't have a system of religion like that. They were across the mountain and down south from where the Jews were in, uh, in their city uh, in Jerusalem. The, there was some influence of Judaism there. There probably was a few Jews there. It was not, however, like that. They were most predominantly just straight up pagans, straight up idolaters in their past. Paul came, preached Jesus to them. He preached repentance. He, he preached salvation through substitutionary atonement. Didn't call it that then, but that's what it was. And they genuinely got saved. He started a bunch of little churches. Okay. So that's where we're at now. The Judaizers followed them around. You know the story. And they said, you, you got to be, he called it circumcised. He called the whole, the whole system circumcision. Let's read now what Paul says to him in verses 8 through 20. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to become once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? 
They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that they may make much of you, that you may may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, you know my weakness. Heavenly Father, as we've seen all through your scripture, our sickness and disease that would be our death is our sin. Heavenly Father, we know that your truth revealed in your gospel and your word is that cure. Help us, Heavenly Father, to see this, to nail it down in our hearts, to take it home with us and to take it to our workplaces to, that the mothers and fathers will uh, infect their children with the gospel. Heavenly Father, please send your spirit to speak tonight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we've got pitted against one another. Judaism and paganism or religion in general. Historically, Judaism had been God's way of revealing himself to his people Israel. Remember, Adam fell. And in a literally history-changing sweep, God himself had chosen to redeem for himself a people by providing both a means of forgiving their sins and punishing them in his son, one man. Jesus' perfect life and death and divine nature all qualified him to be this sacrifice. All that qualified him uh, as a 100% man, 100% God. He could be that sacrifice. He put away every temptation. He conquered every sin, every temptation. And in his sacrificial death, single-handedly, Jesus purchased for himself his church. And as our federal head, Jesus bore all the punishment of all the sins of all his people for all time. This displayed God's supreme grace and patience. And he laid out this redemption typologically, like I just mentioned, in his dealings with Israel in this sacrificial ceremonial system. What do we call it? We call it Judaism. Now, unless we know that, and I think this group knows that, in the world, many people don't do that. Don't know that they see anybody that's not a a Muslim or uh, a witch or anything like that. They they group group them all into like uh, Christians, Jews, even Jehovah's Witnesses. All that they say it's either Christians or something else. We know that uh, Christianity is separate, and unless we have this all 
nailed down, we'll think that Christianity was a like an afterthought, like a plan B. Uh, that's, not, that's not the case at all. In eternity past, God knew, loved, and sovereignly decided to have His people. And what do we call that people? The church. In creation and man's fall, all history since, God Himself has been slowly, patiently, and gently using the sacrifices and the ceremonies up until Jesus to picture his redemptive plan. That we call the gospel. So we have Judaism, we have the gospel. Now, God's plan we know is perfect. Man, however, since we're all descended from Adam, we're fallen and corrupt. We can't do good as hard as we try. We may have some good days. We're corrupt. And eventually the people that God had chosen for himself as Israel defiled that system. It was, a, it was good. It could not save. It was not intended to save. It was intended to point people to Jesus. But they defiled it of types by infusing it with their own pride. That's the way we do things. We want to make much of ourselves like we just read in the scripture. They bent and twisted God's religion to serve them instead of them serving the God of the religion. And just like we just read in our Old Testament readings today, it's, it's full of ups and downs, back and forth. They served God. They thought they repented. They tried to repent. They fell again. They submitted to, uh, to idols and to paganism. It's, it's full of examples of Israel being drawn away to idolatry. idolatry. They never actually, 100%, fully rejected Judaism. But what did they do? They may as well have because they were constantly just trying to add another idolatrous system in. We'll keep our Judaism. We'll keep our sacrifices like uh, Austin was explaining this morning. They had to go several times a year. We'll keep our, and I'm going to call it religion during this, during this message. But religion is just a, a system, just a, a form. They kept that, but they wanted to always add some kind of idolatry to it. They thought they could improve on it. This week, uh, I was at home a lot. We've had trouble with our ice dispenser door on the fridge. That's how hard it is at our house. It, it would get water on it. The door inside wouldn't close. I mean, you could stick your hand there and it's cold. Coming out, out of the freezer. So we got a new seal. And I took it apart and put it on there. And it, you know, if you've got these uh, more modern, fancy type drawers in your house, you can shut the drawer and it goes about this far and it goes, and slows down. Well, that's what this ice door is made to do. Good design, right? It goes, what? And then closes. Well, that little thing wore out. So when I had it apart, I was able to take that thing out. And now it goes, whack, and it stays shut. No air coming out, no frost, no... It, it works. That was a good design. Not a perfect design. And I kind of had to modify it a little bit. But it works. God's gospel is not that way. 
perfect. You can't mess with it. You can't modify it. God's model required that his nation, Israel, be undefiled. They had to stay pure. It had to be a pure bloodline uh, to bring forth his Savior. In his perfection, God can't tolerate deviation. We call it sin. But in his fallen state, man cannot be anything but a rebel. And he will always deviate. So, on and on it goes. From the Garden of Eden, through the Old Testament, through the New Testament, through 1988, all the way up to 2020. Men like that. Nationally, however, God always did save a remnant. The nation of Israel never passed completely from the scene. He always kept a remnant so that, so that he could have Jesus born through the very bloodline that he prophesied. He did preserve a way for that seed that we talked about earlier in chapter 3 to be born. What do we call him? We call him our Christ. Judaism we know is old, historical. It's stable. It's, it's like a job. It's always giving man something to do. And men actually, in their fallenness, they like that. Even lazy men, they, they need something to do. Another sacrifice, another ceremony, another offering, another feast, or a holy day. Now the elect in Israel that the Holy Spirit actually dealt with their heart and called into genuine saving repentance. There was people saved in the Old Testament. A genuine saving and repentance. They saw Judaism for what it was, a type. And God led them to look forward to Christ. That's the only way anybody's ever been saved, before or after. The vast majority, though, used it as a way, just like the Judaizers, to promote themselves, to say, look at me. I dress like this. I got this bloodline. I go to church. I go to synagogue, I'm sorry. I go to synagogue constantly. I, I pay my tithes, even down to mint and cumin, they said. I am a son of Abraham. These Jews cannot deny that Jesus, the man Jesus came and lived, but if they embraced him as God, as he truly was, then that would be the end of their little religion. Even with their Old Testament prophets, apart from the saving of the Holy Spirit, they couldn't see that their triumphant Savior, that they really wanted to save them from Rome, was also the suffering servant portrayed by their own prophets. God and man, suffering servant, Savior. He, he fulfilled all this. So some ad adapted the new system. By New Testament times, what did they call it? They called it the way. And they tried to assimilate converts into Judaism. They said, if you're going to be a cool, Christian, good, whatever, 
But you need to be a Jew too, and you need to be circumcised. You need to adopt our system. So when they done that, neither their religion nor their newfound faith could help save man's soul. You either have religion, a system, a type, a picture. Remember I said a picture of your spouse? You want to smooch a picture of your spouse? You want to smooch your spouse. You want the real thing or you want a picture? You can't have it both ways. Neither one could save. And so we see that what Jesus talked about in Matthew 15, 14, he said the blind lead the blind and they both fall in the ditch. He said this, this, thing, is, this thing is a wreck from the beginning. You can't, you can't mix religion with soul salvation. And that brings us to where we're at today. The heading of our first section is returning to religion. And under that, it says, let the past stay in the past. In verses 8 and 9, we see these words. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved. In the beginning of verse 9, it says, but now. Uh, these constantly... He's, he's pitting these two against each other, slaves and freedom. Uh, these things picture the bondage of our fallenness. These things express a single thought that's saying that, one, you did not know God, and two, you're enslaved to idols. They go together. You can't know God and worship idols, and if you worship an idol, you don't know God. We see that in 1 Corinthians verse, chapter 6, verse 9. That says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Uh, these things are not God's. He mentions that later. And he says they are, again, mutually exclusive. Uh, we also see that people who are indwelt by God's Holy Spirit cannot be slaves to idolatry. You can either be, like we just described, a Jew who is empty and heartless inside, no repentance, no Holy Spirit work, or you can be a Christian. In Jonah chapter 8, I mean, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 8, says those who pay regard to vain idols forsake. They give it up. You can't have it both ways, he said. They forsake their hope of steadfast love. And in 1 John chapter 5, we see the command, little children, keep yourselves from idols. He goes on. He's, furthermore, what you had before uh, is, is pictured, I mean, uh, expressed in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verses 20 through 22. They are not gods. These idols that you're, that you're worshiping, that you had in the past, he's just, drawn, he's, he's just drawn to memory. Remember what you used to do? Remember all them sacrifices and the awful debauchery you were in before? That was not God, he said. In 1 Corinthians, he says, No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, that's what you used to do, Galatians, they offer up to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. 
You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we pervert the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Paul was saying, remember what you came from? The Galatians had repented of their paganism. Paul was reminding them, that's not you anymore. But he's drawing a parallel between Christless Judaism and Christless idolatry. Without Christ, it's the same thing. He's saying, you don't want to, you don't want to go back there. That was their past. In verse 9, we see these two phrases. Uh, now that you have come to know God, and typical of, we've, we've seen Paul do this in the past, he kind of, is almost like he corrects it, an afterthought. It's not, it's, it's 100% inspired. He says, or rather, you, or rather to be known by God. He says, there's, there's a difference here. The Galatians may have known God. Because they had been taught. Paul taught them. He says, I know I taught you these things. He saw to that. However, God's knowledge, is our knowledge better than God's? Can't be. God's knowledge has its origin in his sovereign, holy choice. So, did the Galatians know God first or did God know them first? God knew them first. Sovereign from eternity past. God himself chose to save Paul and burden him with the gospel. God himself deliberately chose each Galatian believer. He was trying to tell them by that one little flippant statement. For God to declare that he knows us is much more significant and much weightier than for us to say that we know him. He does everything better than everybody. That's just part of, that's just in his nature. That's part of his godness. And we should be thankful for that. They should be thankful for that. He said, you've come this far. Now that you've known God, he says, you, why would you do that? Why would you turn back? He's been asking this question back and forth all the time, all through Galatians. In verses, verse 9b, what does he call these things? And how is he... And you start to question yourself. Paul, are you saying Judaism is paganism? Are you saying that's what they come from? He calls them weak, worthless, elementary principles of the world. And we see that in, in verse 3, same chapter. Uh, pagan religions... How do they worship? Witchcraft, earth, wind, fire, water. They call on these forces. It refers to that. It also refers to the most fundamental, most basic things. You, you've, uh, he's pretty much just saying you're not very smart. You hadn't got very far learning about God. You hadn't got very far learning about paganism. You, you're, he's saying these things are tiny. They're insignificant. They're, they're worthless. So is he equating Old Testament Judaism with paganism? No, he's not. Judaism was not paganism. Not as God gave it anyway. Because we know God only gives good gifts. 
all of the Old Testament sacrifices pointed forward to Christ. All of the restrictions and regulations pointed to the holiness, the exclusiveness, and the deity of Christ. All the feasts and holy days pictured fellowship with God through Jesus. The system was not a bad system. They couldn't, however, save a soul. They could not impart righteousness that a man needs to stand before God. In their intended context and purpose, what was it? There was a picture pointing to Christ. It was not bad. It was a good picture. It pictured it good. I mean, you might as well say perfect. God does everything perfect. However, what they had turned it into, what fallen man took it, bent it here, and tweaked it there, like they did when they done the, uh, I know I re refer to this a lot, the uh, temple money and the money exchange rate, robbing people, selling animals once they got there for their sacrifices. What men had distorted it into was really, really bad. We can see that even as far back as Amos. Let's turn to Amos chapter 5. Let's see what God says through the prophet Amos. Turn to Amos chapter 5. We'll start reading in verse 21. These are very strong words. <clears throat> through Amos, God tells them, I hate I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. But what's the result? But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Even at the point way back in the history of Amos, God says, if your heart's not in it, it's not good. It's, I'm, not, I'm not hearing it. Get it away from me. It's making me sick. How could the Galatians know that? They didn't know that. They had no Jew-like history with the one true God. They did, however, have a lot of history and a lot of experience with paganism. So Paul knew when he made this parallel, paganism, pagan religion and Christless, Christ, Christless Judaism, he knew that parallel fit. He just had to get them to understand it. How did he know that? Because that was his history. Remember what he said? I was a son of a Pharisee. I was a Pharisee of a Pharisee. I was like number two Pharisee, soon to be number one Pharisee. But he said, my heart was wicked. My heart had not repented. He said, Jesus had to come to me on the road and blind me with a light. <coughs> Paul knew that. He knew his own, his own past. He's speaking 
from a past, and that's why his heart was breaking. Empty, remorseless ritual with no love toward God is just as disgusting to God as pagan orgies and rituals. Pagan child sacrifice. That should chill our souls. Where's our heart? Hosea 6, 6 says, I desire not, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. It's never been about religion. It's never been about a sacrifice except one. It's never been about what man can do. It's about what God has already done. In verse 10, we see a progressive description of this empty religion. Now what I believe Paul is talking about here, specifically, would be the Judaistic way of worshiping because they did have these things, these progressive here, days, months, seasons and years. Pagans had their version of it too. Paul said, if you go into circumcision, it's going to be the same thing. He says, this is, they do this, the pagans do this. He says, they're weak and work worthless. These days and months and seasons and years, he says it's, it's just like throwing things away. He says, this is empty. It's not going to work. He says, one parallel fits the other religion. Repeatedly, Paul refers to slavery and freedom. We read that. We read that in verse 9. He says, you want to be slaves once more? You want to be tied to this obligation? He's reminding them by doing this parallel. He said, if you think paganism was bad, wait till you're obligated under penalty of being ostracized like the Jews were to all the scheduled days and weeks and months and years of religion bound up in Judaism. He said, if you think paganism was bad, Judaism's really bad. They got way more than what you ever had. His warning is, you will comply. Judaism is strict. It's as strict as any, any religion. And furthermore, there's no good will in it. No love. No real benefits except you can call yourself a son of Abraham. Paul's saying, you're going you're gonna to do all this stuff and you're not going to have anything to show for it. Can you hear Paul's frustration? He said, really? You want to do this? He describes it. He lays it out. He said, I've been there. I know what I'm talking about. And in light of all this, in verse 11, all, this, all these things he's throwing up, he says, I even question your conversion. He says, I'm afraid I may have labored in vain. 
The second heading says fan into flame. That comes from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. Verse 12. We do believe they were genuine believers because he calls them brothers. He loves the Galatians over and over. He talks about laboring as, with a child. He talks about brothers and sisters. He talks about son, He says, you're my sons. You're my children. He loves them. His heart is breaking for them. Furthermore, he says, I'm begging you. In our, in our version of the Bible, it says, I entreat you. He says, please, please reason this out. I, I implore you. He says that in many of his epistles. He says, what do I implore you to do? He says, become, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Paul identified with the Galatians. He has not forgotten his salvation. In making this comparison, he acknowledged that all, like I said, all his Jewish learning, all his heritage, all his zeal. Remember he talked about in chapter 1, verse 13? I, he said, I was in zeal. I was advancing above my brethren. He said all that was empty until Jesus saved him. Again, we see this parallel Paul's making. He says, I know what I'm talking about. I've been there. Now we come to the part that lots of people like to talk about, this uh, bodily ailment. Uh, he says, you know it was because of bodily ailment. Clearly, Paul's point in mentioning it is just to say that this was God's way of bringing me to you. This is providence. God caused me to have this problem that stopped me in Galatia long enough for you to make friends with me and minister to me and I could start these churches. And you know, there's tons of speculation about this and we try to uh, parallel it with Paul's thorn in the flesh that we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Maybe it is. If it is, fine. He also talks about poor eyesight. In Acts chapter 23, remember when the, the, uh, he reviled the high priest? And he's, clearly a high priest would be dressed different than anybody. Well, why could Paul not see that? People say it was because he had bad eyesight. I, I believe Paul had eyesight. Still, it's all sanctified conjecture. And if it was vital to the teaching here, it would be clear. And we would know it's not, it's not vital. The thing is... God orchestrated a problem that brought him to the Galatians. That's what it was. He points out that it was bad. Uh, he says it was so bad, I was repulsive. That that's what the language here. My, my condition was a trial to you. This, it was repulsive to people. They didn't want to be around him. Uh, he said, but yet, you did come around me. You did minister to him. Paul's point is that there was nothing about him to endear him to the Galatians. In fact, it was the opposite. Yet God moved the Galatians to accept him and hear the gospel. He's building up to the next question. He's asking. He says, What then has become of your blessedness? What's changed? He's forcing them to examine and go about this methodically and practically and say, remember, remember our past? 
He said, it wasn't because of me that you became a Christian. There's nothing good about me. In fact, I was disgusting to you when I came to you. It couldn't have been me. He says, you're the same. I'm the same. God's the same. What's, what's happened here? He said, your perspective of the gospel is somebody's messed you up. And matter of fact, he calls about it uh, back, in, back in the, I think it was chapter 2. He says, uh, you've been bewitched. And the third heading in this message says the truth hurts in verse 16 we see he says have I become your enemy remember Jesus' words in Matthew 10 how the gospel divides the gospel can divide we, many of us have gone through that many of us have had Friends and families and co-workers, it's caused us trouble in our jobs, uh, trouble in society. It separates. Jesus said in Matthew 10, he said, I, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. The gospel does divide. Let's just turn to Matthew chapter 10 and see an example of that. about the sword and we'll read down through 39 do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth I have not come to bring peace but a sword or I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his household whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Clearly, it does cause division. It will sometimes make enemies. Paul is, Paul is saying, that's not the case here. He's saying, I've done nothing to you. Matter of fact, He says in the, the preceding verse there, you ministered to me to the point that you would have gouged out, gouged out your eyes for me. What's changed? Have I become your enemy? The gospel has not made us an enemy because you repented. Paul wants the Galatians to confirm and acknowledge that they believe like he does. In verse 17, he says they... We know he's talking about the Judaizers. They make much of you. What does that tell you? They're smooth talkers. They're using flattery. This is not the teaching of Christ. He already addressed this in chapter 3, verse 1. Remember I mentioned bewitched. He's, this is literally translated from a phrase that means an evil eye. He says, they have bewitched you. Uh, distracted you pointed you away from Jesus 
the Judaizers' motive was to add to their own number, not the church. He says, I'm not the enemy, Paul says. You shouldn't hate me because I brought you the truth. Surely you wouldn't do that. In verses 18 through 20, he points out this anguish we see. He talks about there in verse 19, the anguish of childbirth. Uh, it's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I'm with you, my little children, for whom I'm with the anguish of childbirth. Paul is saying, I have labored and labored and labored over you. He said, you put up with me in my disgusting illness. I put up with you and brought you the gospel and <laughs> labored and taught you. He also points out that uh, he, he said, I'm wearing myself out. He says, I have expended myself on you. I've poured out my life. Why are you doing this? It's, you're doing this. These people are trying to win you over. They're trying to drag you away. Uh, there's very few feelings in a human's, a human's nature that affects you more than betrayal, than just to be turned away for no reason, to be misunderstood particularly. And that's what Paul is going through. He's saying, I loved you with the gospel. You repented to the gospel. He said, you came to Christ. It's tearing his heart out. He said, he goes on to say, I want Christ to be formed in you. He says, I want you to be the kind of person who can make disciples instead of me always having to come to you and disciple you more. He said, I want you to be a mature Christian. I want you to, uh, instead of me trying to babysit you and, and nurse you all the time, you need to be the kind of person who can build this church that we started. He's very, very, very hurt. He's very confused. In verse 20, he says, I wish I could be present. He says, he's writing this in a letter. He says, I wish I could be there. I wish I could come. I wish I could hold you. I wish I could look you in the face. And we could reason this out. Circumstances prevented Paul from doing that. He says, I'm perplexed. I can't figure this out. Can you imagine Paul's, Paul's heartbreak? He's astonished. Uh, remember the, the word in chapter 1, verse 6. He says, I'm astonished. He says, I'm blown away. I can't believe you could let this happen. And literally, Paul is losing his assurance that his ministry is effective. So, what things do we see from the Galatians? From their salvation, from their, let's call it gullibility, from being influenced wrongly. We know that true biblical Christianity has its source in the gospel. The Galatians had that. True biblical Christians are growing up into spiritual maturity. 
that is fed by sound doctrine. The Galatians had a degree of that. True biblical doctrine is only revealed in Scripture as we have it from God. They had that because they had Paul. You talk about a brain trust. You talk about a library of Old Testament. He had it. Scripture spewed out of him. Any doctrine that directs us away from Jesus alone, Jesus alone, is as our Savior, is false. Bear n- bar none. Je- Jesus is exclusive. Christianity is exclusive. There's no, we can take no pride in that because we didn't start it. We can, however, proclaim it plainly because it's a solitary biblical truth. It's exclusive. Jesus alone. Jesus alone. There has never been a ritual or ceremony that God requires to complete what Christ done, what Christ started. The Judaizers called theirs circumcision. It included their whole system. Christ's redemptive work is done. It was done on the cross. Those are our doctrines. What's our application? In verse 12, Paul says, I have become like you. Paul knew there's only one degree of dead. Either you're dead or you're not dead. He knew this. He remembered his own past, his own religion was just as empty and just as useless as the idolatry that the the, uh, Galatians came out of. We have no moral high ground to stand on and look down on somebody and say, I'm better than you. We can't say, like the Judaizers wanted to, I'm son of Abraham. That don't exist. We can't hold that over lost people. As we take the gospel to others, remember, we all were once dead in trespasses and sins. Paul did not forget that. In verse 16, we're pointed out and taught. If we're faithful to our gospel proclamation, some people will consider us enemies. The Galatians, Paul thought the Galatians were turning against him. He says, have I become your enemy? Are you mad at me? But just because I tell you the truth, I really admire that about this group, about our church, uh, especially these young men. Uh, they can come to each other and talk, even confront or even uh, upbraid one another in a godly way, and it's taken good. It's it's not, not normally... Uh, a source of contention. Great maturity there. Some people, however, will take offense. The gospel, we've talked about it, does divide. What can we do about that? Well, in our gospel proclamation, what do we do? We be consistent. That means you tell it consistently, you live it consistently. That nothing breeds confusion and animosity more than Saying one thing and doing another. Am I right? Yes, I'm right. Be consistent. Be clear. Sometimes the gospel offends people. 
that's fine. As a matter of fact, we're told in the Bible that it is, God's word is like a two-edged sword. It's a, it's a, a weapon. If the gospel is offensive, cool, let it be offensive. Let that word cut. It does not, however, need help from your tongue. Do you know what I mean by a sharp tongue? I don't think I need to say anything. If anybody, anybody in all scripture was qualified to be a Bible bully, Paul was. But he didn't travel around picking doctrine fights. What did he do? What did Paul say? What did Paul say I do? He says, I preach Christ and him crucified. And what do we know about Paul? His ministry is still effective today. As far as sanctification, verses 17 and 18. We're all being sanctified. Paul said he would keep laboring like a pregnant mother until Christ was formed in the Galatians. When we are glorified and in heaven with Jesus, our sanctification will be over. Until then, we're all in this process together. We have to extend grace to one another in our sanctification life, in our sanctification process. In each local church, we should work to support and encourage one another and even facilitate sanctification in our members. In Jude verse 20, it says in part, we are to build up one another in our most holy faith. The gospel, our sanctification, our glorification is all part of God's plan. We all see uh, the struggle that Paul went through here with the Galatians. His heart broke. He, uh, I don't think anybody except Jesus has been so heartbroken over a group of people as, as Paul was. He did not want to see them fall back into a Christless religion, whether it was branded Molech or whether it was branded being a son of Abraham. The brand does not matter. It's what's in their heart. And Paul poured out his heart to tell them that. Let's pray.